SequelCast 2 is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. By the way, uh, where is it that you live, Carol? Over in Ramona. Why? Oh, oh no. Uh-uh. You thought I'd tell you where I live? Not me. Not old Carol. The night is young, and I'm not hitting the rack till I get a little action. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast. And your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show will Hello, welcome to SequelCast 2, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi, and with me is Thrasher. Hey, the Wolfman coming at you. I got more sound per pound coming on those turntables, baby. Here's Shonda and the Rondells. Of course, uh, we're talking about Radioland City Murders, first in the trilogy. No, we're talking about American <laughs> Graffiti, a, uh, a film by George Lucas's second feature film. As the poster says, uh, where were you in 62? And this came out in 73, so this was a nostalgia piece, among other things. Uh, directed by George Lucas, written by George Lucas, Gloria Katz, and Willard Huck. Um, if you recognize those other two names, you should, because they wrote and directed Howard the Duck. As well as helping on the script for Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, and doing an uncredited rewrite on Star Wars Episode Four. So they've been longtime friends of the Lucases, um, starring Richard Dreyfuss, Ron Howard, Paul Lamott, Charles Martin Smith, Candy Clark, Mackenzie Phillips, Cindy Williams, and Wolfman Jack. As himself. So, that's right. Cinematography by Ron Evislage and Jean Dalquin. Edited by Verna Fields and Marsha Lucas. It was George Lucas' wife at the time. This was one of the most profitable profitable movies at all time of all times for a while, I think, until Blair Witch Project. Off a budget of seven hundred seventy-seven thousand dollars, this made one hundred and forty million. Oh man! So yeah, American Graffiti. We were talking offline about this Thrasher, and you had mentioned uh, what if George Lucas had made films like this and had not done his science fiction film. Yeah, it's it, it really it really made me. I, I hate because you know I, I do enjoy Star Wars. Star Wars has given me so much joy, but but revisiting this film, you know, I really can't help but wonder what if this had been the career defining film for George Lucas and not Star Wars? Like what what would the world of cinema look like today, and what kind of movies would he still be making? Yeah, I think if George Lucas had not made Star Wars, someone else would have made something like it. Um, you think we still would have gotten Dune from David Lynch? I don't know about that, but I don't know if we would have got Battlestar Galactica, but I think some, you know, people say it's Star Wars that did the whole blockbuster thing first, and I don't know. I mean, it, uh, Jaws was before that. Jaws was kind of the first big one, and the one-two punch of Jaws and Star Wars, and Brocky to some extent, you know, those all ushered in the uh, start of franchises without which we wouldn't have a show as equal cast too but <laughs> but yeah it's uh, it's really something here um 
I don't know. It's quite different. It's this is a more gentle film than you would think. Uh, so for for context, George Lucas's first film was a expanded version of his student film THX eleven thirty eight. This was it's a very very strange slow uh, science fiction film uh, starring Robert Duvall and um, very intellectual, a lot of wacky sound design, and uh, it was a big flop. And then. Uh, you know, Lucas had to make money, and how could he do that? Well, uh, he, you know, and his uh, his mentor and friend, Francis Ford Coppola, challenged him to write something warm and cuddly, and so this is what came out of him. A lot of this of what was based on his um, teenage years growing up in Modesto, California. Oh, and this has Modesto all over it. Yep. And uh, when did you first see this, Thrasher? First time I saw this would have been, I don't have a specific date, I was very, very young at the time, I might have been five or six, but uh, my dad was watching this on cable, we had just recently had cable installed, I remember I remember watching it with him. Yeah, I watched it with my dad as well, I think I was around five or six, uh, we had rented the, the movie from the little video store in town, and it was really, um, watching this now, I'm a bit surprised I was watching this when I was so young, because even for a PG movie... There's a lot of uh, sex material, not not explicit, but certainly in the in the conversation, and by today's standards, even parts of this movie seem a bit rapey. Well, there there there's a there's a, 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 a there's a female character that makes a that, that makes a crack about that in this film. Yeah, uh, but keep in mind this is this was back when PG actually meant something. That yeah right. When you they had no PG thirteen. Fucking meant it. Right, exactly. I mean, I think of you know. Airplane had bare breast, and that was a PG movie. Um, Planet, one of the Planet of the Apes films had an ape get killed at gunpoint, and that was rated G, so you never know. But yeah, you're right. Um, I love this poster by Mad Magazine artist Mort Drucker. Oh, it's so good. I wish we still made posters like this. I know, great likenesses of the characters, and you have some uh, a lot of music and stuff going on in the edges there pretty good. Speaking of music, I mean, that's something revolutionary about this movie, is how packed with music this movie is. Well, and I realized it was easier to license music back then, it was easier then than it is now, just, you know, with ancillary rights and whatnot, and yet at the same time, I, f I feel like most of this movie's budget had to go into securing the rights to all that song, all those songs. Uh, it was about a tenth of the budget. Really? So less than you would think, but they had to make these sort of sweetheart deals with all the different record companies, if you look in the credits, it does list like you know ten different record companies or something, and they yeah, said, "Okay, every song and, is courtesy of this comp this label and this producer." Right, because and that was part of the deal they made. But they said, "Okay, we're going to pay each of you the same flat fee, and we can use whatever song we want." I mean, you would never do that today. You would never get away with that today. But the seventies, early seventies, were a different time. And um, I'm sure having Francis Ford Coppola coming off his heat from the Godfather movies and stuff as a producer in this film helped. At one point, um, when watching a screening, a rough cut of this film, Universal was so appalled that they just wanted to release this as a direct-to-video movie. Did, did, did they even have direct-to-video back then? I, I'm, uh, I'm sorry, I mean uh, made-for-TV made for movie. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, it was really... Uh, really quite something and the the music in this is all over the place and the soundtrack which was a double LP 
was so successful, they released three different American graffiti soundtracks. Three volumes. Uh, most of which feature music not in the movie, but based on that same time period. Confusingly, the second album is called More American Graffiti. <laughs> which was which, the title of the sequel. As the I title of the sequel. Which the sequel also had a soundtrack called More American Graffiti, so go figure that out. But, <laughs> but yeah, um, I've heard it been said with American Graffiti, and I think this is a good theory, is the four main male characters all represent a part of George Lucas. I can buy that. You have Richard Dreyfuss as Kurt, who's kind of wishy-washy. He's a bit of a rebel. Ron Howard is... He's not a rebel, but he's, he's, he's eager to find himself. It's just he's not that motivated to look very far. Right. Um, yeah, Ron Howard is Steve, who's... He has, he has um, ambition. He has a lust for ambition, life. Ambition. go places. Lust for life. He's also going steady with the girl. I'm not sure what to do about that. You have Paul Lamott, who's the car freak. And, um, he's George kind of Lucas. Masculine. He's really. Yeah. He feels like he's got something to prove, but the only arena he feels comfortable proving things in is it with in the world of custom hot rods and street races. And you have the nerd, Terry the Toad Fields, played by Charles Martin Smith. And, and he he really he's the kid who really really <coughs> wants to keep up with the older people he's friends with. Exactly, and uh, and so it's interesting to see. How they bounce off with each other. The um, what I found very interesting during research for this is the rough cut of this was three and a half hours long, and it had a structure that you get a scene with one character, then a scene with another character, then a scene with another character, and it was like very repetitive in the structure. We would see that same structure in its sequel, More American Graffiti, but here they had to recut it, where it was more like a regular movie, um, although it's still very you know these characters going on these episodes. I mean, even though it's um, not said as much, Happy Days is basically American Graffiti, the TV show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. With Rod Howard playing a very similar character. And uh, I have a feeling that... Um, oh, Henry Winkler got a little bit of inspiration playing the Fonz from Paul Amat here as John Milner. I don't know, I feel like he's a little bit more of a pharaoh type. I guess so, with the jacket, it can be more like the pharaoh, that's a good point. The, the too cool for school attitude. Yeah, um, but I think something that's refreshing about this movie is how, how loose it feels, and how real the relationships between the characters feel. A lot of it is just them cruising up and down the strip, trying to pick up chicks. Which used to be a very, very big thing in America yeah. in, the, in the 50s and 60s, in the, in the post-war boom. Uh yeah, that's something. That's something that's kind of lost. I actually so uh, in Ashland, uh, North Carolina, I went to a, I went to a convention there, the one and only Dungeon Con, and they still had a real strip culture. Oh, the streets were so over congested with cars, you really couldn't go anywhere. Ah. so we did attempt to cruise the strip, and what it sadly like, I can understand why people enjoyed it, but like in these modern times, the magic of that is gone. Right. Also, I mean, gas was much cheaper then. That's another thing. Oh, yeah. Cars were cheaper. Everything was cheaper. Um, so you could afford... I mean, even now, I think the concept of a joyride probably seems kind of foreign to people, but... I, I only know of it because I, I was alive in the last age where that was economically feasible to do. Right. I don't know about... Like, what does what gas cost by you in Kentucky right now? Uh, it 
it has been hovering at about $2.85 for the past month as of this recording. Yeah, we've been a little bit north of 3 and a few years ago it was really bad and it was up to 4.50. Um still nothing compared to California prices or Hawaii prices, but so I generally I gen- this is a nostalgia piece and I generally don't like nostalgia, but I like the nostalgia in this movie for two reasons. One, it's an era I have no I have no romance for. Yep. And that kind of like is in- insulates me from the worst aspects of, you know, nostalgia for the 50s or or in this case the early 60s. But the other thing is I kept every time I like saw the price of something, I just oh things used to be affordable. And it became like a fairy tale. Hamburgers for five cents, yeah. Um, and I just think of all of the things now that did that outpaced inflation. Uh, it just makes me more and more angry at the people in this movie and who they would have turned into growing up, and what they would have facilitated with their lazy with their lazy participation in democracy. What's neat in this film is how characters paired up in sometimes surprising ways. Especially um, Paul Lamette is John Milner, who's kind of the 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 tough guy with his, his custom car that's a bit older, but uh, he keeps on tooling on the engine to make it to win at these sort of drag races. But he um, does that. At the same time, he is, is, is cruising, like, trying to pick up a, these girls, and they're not interested, but their little sister is. And he said, okay, but it turns out the little sister... Is a really is a little sister in every sense of the word. She's like eleven or something. I think I think she's fourteen. I, I she looks quite young. Yeah, I think she's supposed to be fourteen. But yeah, and like clearly she's been foisted upon him like as a prank, and also I think the implication is her own sister doesn't want to hang out with her. Right? Yeah, her own sister's trying to get rid of her for the night. And it is kind of neat though, because like he he ends up just by being forced into the situation, does become this like nurturing, protective older brother figure in her life, and she she also starts to realize that maybe she doesn't need to grow up as quickly as she thinks she did in the beginning of the film. And at the same time, she's good when they're being hassled in the car. She's good at like giving them shit right back, and oh no no they they spar, and she can give as good as she gets. And that's Especially the thing the, I, I yeah. like about the the, the the little sister character is that uh, is that it, it really contradicts because that's the, that's the one thing I hate when I hear older people talking about how <laughs> great things used to be. Uh, you know, like we were never we were never an innocent people, and that's what I like about her character. She she's foul mouthed and she knows what sex is, and the movie doesn't try to romanticize her as this fragile angelic thing. Yeah, and it, it, I found I was actually a bit shocked rewatching this, where the cop pulls him over, and then she says, "Okay, I'm going to tell if you don't do everything I say uh, that I want to do tonight, uh, you know, I'm gonna, I'll tell the cops that you raped me, and they'll they'll believe me, they won't believe you, and you're going to be put in jail." And like, and and you can't tell is is that just is that just her trying to be? Is that just her like her idea of of escalating this prank, or is that? her like just she, she's sort of that she's savvy enough that she knows how to manipulate the situation yeah. right and she is manipulative to a degree I mean so you have that story you have a lot of the beginning is focused on uh, a very young clean shaven Richard Dreyfus as Kurt Henderson who he he's part of some sort of like lodge club thing the moose lodge, yeah. the moose lodge and uh 
they he's such an upstanding young man they they give him a check to use towards college and he got accepted to a college out of state but now he's being wishy-washy about whether he should go or not yeah, and, and uh, Ron Howard is Steve is giving he is giving him the check and is like really like no no remember all the strings we pulled to make sure that we were going to go to the same college like I I love I love their friendship I I love how quickly their friendship is established and I love the way it carries through the film and and I and it does and it does sort of sum up those those ambivalent feelings you can have where when you're when you're you're simultaneously ready to go out and strike out on your own but also don't want to leave everything you have behind. Yeah, and uh, the actress that plays his um, his girlfriend, Sydney Williams, playing Laurie, is uh, she's really incredible. I mean, because she they have a lot of character work to do there, and uh, they're basically like he he lays on the classic line, "Oh, we're going to college. I think we need to see separate people." He wants an open relationship, is how they'd say he, it now. He wants to be able to have sex, but he also doesn't want to break it off. And yeah, it's and that that's a shitty take to have, but let's be fair. Most of us had that exact same take at that age. Exactly, and you know, I, I I've known we we have some uh, friends, not to get too specific, that have made that work, which is good for them. I could never get that to work, nor am I interested in that. But it's such a. But you're right. At that age, especially, that's that's the line everyone wants to do because it seems convincing and I, I i don't know but it's it's it is a shitty thing to do especially when you know the night before everyone is going to leave to go to college and uh i remember i was the most emotionally affected by this movie re-watching it right when i graduated high school because you have the feeling you have all these friends in high school and they're all going sort of their separate ways to different colleges or different jobs or whatever it is they end up doing and you most likely you're not going to see them again yeah, I can know my, my own my own experience. It's been it's been very rare that I've encountered people from my middle school and high school life in my adult life. Even yeah. on social media. Uh, and <laughs> actually, I remember the last time. Uh, so I'm I'm very particular about who I connect with on social media now, and so there's only really like three people <coughs> from my past that I'm at all connected with, and. The, the one time a fourth person actively sought me out and wanted to connect with me, he said, you know what, yeah, okay, uh, I'll, say, I'll say yes. Then I took one look at their feed and remembered exactly why I had not spoken to or even thought about them in 20 years. There are some friendships that just need to end. Yeah, that was true. Uh, we also have... Um and I, I love it. It's such a good visual joke, I think. You have Cherry the Toad is on a scooter. He can't park it correctly, so he kind of, like, crashes it and falls over as he's going to the diner where they meet at Mel's Diner where they meet up at the beginning. Well, he's, and, he's such a wonderful... He's just such a wonderful <coughs> dork. And, like, Toad... You take one look at him, and, yeah, I can buy that Toad is his nickname. Yeah, and he's, uh... He's clumsy, but he doesn't play it too nebbish. And he has kind of a real sweet kind of romance that develops between him and Debbie, who is this kind of standard, uh, you know, has, has the blonde beehive kind of look to her, but she's also really into cars. And he gets, and um, Ron Howard's character, Steve, lends his car to uh, Terry the Toad. Yeah, because the whole idea is he, he, he doesn't want to take his car with him to college, at least not initially, so he's putting Terry the Toad in charge of it. And for the first time in his life, 
Terry's got wheels. And like when you when you get a car, that is a big even even if it's one that you're you're kind of quote unquote borrowing long term or has been entrusted to you, that's a big deal. And I love how having access to the car kind of makes Terry's confidence grow and makes him start to go out in the world and, and, and try to connect with women. But it leads into this slowly evolving ball of lies as he tries to make himself seem more impressive than he is. Yeah, and especially he tries to like describe things about the car because the, the girl, he picks her up and she goes in and she seems to have kind of a fetish about the leather in the car and the... Oh, yeah. And all these things. And he's like, oh, and I got another car to use when I go hunting. And he's, he's trying to be a real macho guy and these characters start together and then they go their separate ways in the movie and they end up together again at the end and so you're following four different storylines but it never gets confusing and i think they, they the editing on this film is really smart kind of cutting between the stories uh at the proper points to keep you sort of in suspense it all it all generally works as simultaneous action, and it, and it's neat to see these characters go through this one, this one wild night. Right. Um, of course, Wolfman Jack. We you hinted at in the introduction. He's uh, he was a, a very famous uh, DJ who legendarily would broadcast from uh, just across the border in Mexico on this radio station that had like. So many watts it could cover the entire United States. Yeah, can we can we talk about that for a moment? Yeah, go for it. So, so yeah, like, Wolf, <coughs> Wolfman Jack is a legendary DJ, and there's really only a handful. It's like Casey Kasem and Cousin Brucey. I feel like those are the only other ones. But and not Howard Stern. You wouldn't say. And they talk and they even talk about in this movie about where where the Wolfman comes from, and they're talking about him like all these urban legends, like he broadcasts from a plane and whatnot. And that's part of Wolfman Jack. Wolfman Jack was a shameless self promoter and loved to tell tall tales about himself. But he, what made him famous is that uh, so there's a whole thing called border radio. Uh, which uh, these were these radio stations just on the Mexico side of the U.S.-Mexico border, and a lot of there were a lot of radio stations there. And the whole the whole reason why you would do something like that is that uh, in America through the FCC, um, radio stations are regulated in such a way that you're only allowed to broadcast over a certain territory, so that every state can have its own radio stations. And so as a result, there's a limit a limit to how uh, many hertz you can have in your broad. Uh, pumping out of your broadcast tower. Well, Mexico did not regulate that. You could have as much, uh, as many gigahertz coming out of your tower as you could afford. And so as a result, in Mexico, you had radio stations so powerful that, yes, under the right atmospheric conditions, they could be heard anywhere on that hemisphere of the Earth. Wow. That's what made Wolfman Jack a sensation all across America. With one transmitter, he could broadcast to the entirety of the United States. And he spun this whole tall tale about how he went south of south of the border and like he, he freed a bunch of revolutionaries and they took over the radio station and were now broadcasting for the people. Uh, he, he's in, uh, he used to sell... Actually, great thing you can listen to is his pitch for selling baby chicks on the radio. Uh, yeah. It was so cowboy down there that nobody there was no way to track your ratings so the way you tracked your ratings is you would sell something that could only be mail ordered out of your radio station and so you couldn't track ratings but you could prove how much mail you were getting 
And so that was, you know, one way to do it. Uh, and so he really he really is a fascinating figure. And then after that, he came to America and he got a syndicated radio show that lasted for ages. He became kind of a spokesperson for 50s rock and roll and 50s nostalgia. He was also uh, infamously, uh, when he moved to an American radio station, a pimp. Uh, he knew all the people in organized prostitution, and so you could call into his radio station to make a song request. But if you made, if you use the right code words, he would arrange a meeting between you and a prostitute. That's really interesting. I, I didn't know all that, but like this movie really was a shot in the arm for his career. We'll mention his appearance a little bit later, and uh, even to the point where he had an animated series briefly. Yeah, I was going to mention that. Yeah, he briefly was in the late 80s. There was a Wolfman Jack animated series where he ran a radio station with some kids and then would do, like, Hollywood news at the end of every episode. Or showbiz news, I guess. And, yeah, so, and, and there, was a, there was some novelty music. One was, uh, Guess Who had a track, Clap for the Wolfman. And uh, it was a big hit, and the Wolfman did some vocals for that. Not singing, but he's sort of in the background going, Oh yeah, ha, 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 I'm the Wolfman Jack, oh! All that stuff, so. He, he has a surprisingly large pop culture footprint. Yeah, and this movie reflects that and helped his pop culture footprint continue late into his career. Um, so yeah, American Graffiti. Um, so we should have talked initially about some of these characters and where their storyline goes. Uh, which storyline sort of speaks the most to you? Uh, oh, it's 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 difficult because I, I really feel like I kind of the the so Kurt, Steve, and Terry the Toad are those are the three stories that that really really re all three of them resonated with me uh, sort of almost equally, and I even started to flash back to some of my own childhood moments, particularly when uh, when. When Kurt gets, uh, or is it not Kurt? When uh, when Terry when Terry's trying to buy alcohol, yeah, and yeah, it, that's it a good scene. Back to some of my own fumbling attempts to secure alcohol before I was of legal age. Right, and then there's like that really dark turn that the guy who can do it for him also robs the store. Yeah, he, he hears gunshots. He just oh, he robs steals. the store. Yeah, and he, th he throws the bottle. And then the friendly neighborhood druggist, who, who's been a real friend to Terry in all these scenes, even as he fails to buy the booze, comes out with a gun and just starts trying to straight up murder the guy yeah. who robbed the store. This kind of drive out. It's really, uh, really quite something. But yeah, no, I, I remember, you know getting drinks for friends when I was older than them or actually like I looked older so a lot of times my ID wouldn't even get checked I remember I'd go to bars and get beers and I was like 18 or something and they would never check my ID um, and even beyond that with Terry just you know how he tries to make himself seem more impressive and you know I, <sighs> I've, I've been in that position where I try to sort of talk myself up before before I, right. before I learn that it's better to just be myself warts and all and you know find people who like those warts um, <laughs> yeah. I love uh I, I, I can I can sympathize with Kurt's sort of trepidation with going out into the world, but I love, I love seeing him be sly. Like I love it when like he gets for all intents and purposes gets abducted by these street cut toughs called the right. Fellows. Yeah, he starts as effectively their hostage, but by the end of it, he's been smooth enough and clever enough that he's for all intents and purposes one of the gang. Well, that is the most impressive stunt in the movie where he. Um 
Oh, where, where he sneaks up behind the police car. Sneaks up a police car. Cable around its axle. Yeah. Then they get the car to chase them, and it pulls the axle out of the car. Yeah. Which, Mythbusters tried that, by the way. Did it work? They got that. Uh, no. Uh, they they found that same type of car. They reproduced the stuff. Wow. Um, yeah. No matter how fast they made it run, they couldn't, like, pop. They couldn't reproduce popping the axle completely out. It mm. did fuck up the undercarriage and make the car undrivable, but it, it wasn't like as cartoonishly wild uh, as that stunt. Um, sure. But I like that. I, lo- I love it when they when he like they're gonna rob the moose lodge and he covers for them while they steal quarters from a machine for gas and he's talking to his friends in the moose lodge because like because and again that speaks to me because like growing up I was the respectable kid that most yeah, yeah, people yeah. in the community liked but that's o- that's only because I was smart enough to not let them see what I was up to. Uh, and as long right. as you swear around them, they think you're the most polite thing in the world. Uh, oh, sure. Especially you know, in, in the South, where that, you know, politeness has a high currency. Oh, bless your heart, you know, it does. Yeah. Isn't bless your heart always a passive-aggressive statement? It tends to be. It, impl- yeah. it implies that you have judged them and found them wanting. Uh-huh. Uh, oh, gosh. And then... And then and I guess strange, strangely enough, uh, like I guess the the part that uh, f- felt but not felt as much was was Ron Howard uh, as Steve only only because like I get it he wants to get out of this town, let him go. Yeah, you know I think I related to to Steve the most because um, although I did have the ambivalence towards college like Kurt does, in you know in high school for God. Two and a half years, I, I dated the same girl, which in high school is like an eternity, mm. uh, and and broke that off uh, shortly after starting college. And so this the I never ever used the line, the open relationship line. I never <laughs> did, but I certainly had friends that did. And this girl later had someone use it on her, and uh, it just broke her heart. But like it's, I just love all the feistiness in the relationship between. Steve and Laurie, because it feel it feels very real. It's not cookie cutter. It's not even though they go to uh, a school dance and he's like too old. He's like a year older to be there, which is kind of weird. Well, um, even then, like you know, they, he wants to see like he wants to see what he's leaving behind, but then he also wants to have his wild night, which is I limit every big transitional moment in my life. I love going out with one last ride, one one big hurrah, and and I love that. I love that. I love that his girlfriend kind of becomes her own old woman. But the other thing I love is just his self-awareness that part of the reason he goes back to that dance is he knows he can't possibly get in trouble because now he's in charge of his own destiny. There's no one at school who can punish him. Right. In fact, it reminded me uh, a little bit. I was, you know, in college and not liking it and being nostalgic for high school, and I sort of showed up to kind of... I don't. I didn't even schedule anything. I just went to one of my old teacher's classes in the high school. Like that doesn't sound creepy, right? And the campus cop escorted me off campus after I already snuck in and spoke to the teacher I wanted to speak to. So <laughs> well, that's why. That's why you you call ahead. I, I learned that since then, and I only did it one other time, and it felt. I don't think it was something I should have done in the first place. But it's an interesting, surreal experience. I guess I recommend you do at least once. Is when you're out of high school, go back and walk around your high school. Yeah, because um, that perspective is really interesting. And like, I, I've always been torn because there are there are a handful of teachers that 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 I would that really did influence me in a positive way that I would like to to meet up with one last time and say thank you to. And on the other hand, 
I really despised my high school. Like, I, I have no oh, desire yeah. to be in that building again. And, like, the handful of time... And, and, and also, when I graduated... This is part of the reason why I don't have much nostalgia for my own teenage years. So much horrible shit came out into the open after I graduated from high school. Mm. It just makes me so furious with that with their administration. Yeah, I... Um, you know, I liked high school. Middle school is the one I really despised. But, uh... It... Yeah, I. But I mean, it, it, I think you have a really good scene in here early on where Kurt speaks to a former teacher, and they're kind of talking about his decision whether to do the college or not. And he says, "You know, while you're young, you're not tied down. You should go out. You should explore. You should do things." And uh, it's a good scene. It's one of the few scenes that was cut from the original theatrical release. Uh, Universal had cut three scenes from the movie. There's that one. They had cut the scene where uh, Toad goes to a, a used car dealership. Oh, I love the used car dealer's path. Yeah, it's a good scene. And then they also cut Harrison Ford. Nope, nope, not the scene with the Dubax, but they cut the scene with Harrison Ford singing One Enchanted Evening, okay. which is a very charming scene, I think. Yeah, we didn't talk about Harrison Ford. Harrison, Harrison Ford has a, is, plays the bad guy, really. Well, well su such as it is, this guy by the name of Falfa, who... Who is like he's like the the big hot rod guy from the next county over who's come who's come over because he wants to challenge John Milner to to a race. Yeah, and it's really something that um, the whole reason Harrison Ford wore a cowboy hat is he refused to shave his shaggy '70s hair. And they said, that's not appropriate for the time period. He's like, I'll just wear a cowboy hat. And Harrison Ford kind of does an accent, and it's not that good, but that makes it kind of charming. It makes him seem like kind of a, a poser a bit. Well, you know what he's, you know what he is? He is the dark side of John Milner. Because John Milner, you know... Ah, that's, yeah, yeah. That's right. his thing, is that he, you know, he's all about hot rods and custom cars and street racing. But he also has friends, and he's also part of that community. Falfa strikes me as somebody who has nothing in his life outside of his car. And so that's why he has all these affected traits. That's why half the time he has a different woman in the car. Right, because they just can't stand him or something. And yeah. yeah. Or he, it's like, he thinks it's like trying to get beat a high score to get a collection. Uh, also, it's interesting the how um, you have... Uh, Falfa, there's a scene late in the film towards the climax where they're trying to figure out, you know, where certain characters are, and it felt very real to me that you have these people in the car culture, you know, at the stoplight or in a not very busy part of town at two in the morning, you slow down and talk to each other. Hey, have you seen where this guy is? Oh, I heard he's with this guy on this track. Yeah, it's that whole rumor chain because you can't uh -huh. have a cell phone or telegraph. Yeah, yeah, right, and that that really struck me. No cell phone, no uh, no telegraph. That was a real big, uh, notable moment, um, and well, I also like the the resolution of that whole thing because Falfa and Milliner do do their drag race on the edge of town. Before that, can we do the Wolfman Jack scene? Oh, that is such a beautiful. Scene. That's such yeah. a good bit of business. In fact, that would even work as like a standalone short film. You could show that scene 
as a YouTube clip to someone, and they would get something out of it, even if they didn't know who Wolfman Jack was. It's a yes, yeah, nice and self-contained. So yeah, Night so self-contained. So uh, Kurt, Kurt early, yeah. early on, Kurt saw this beautiful woman he's never seen before in this car. And he really, like, she sort of symbolizes, I guess, everything he wants out of life. And he wants to hook up with her, but he can't find her anywhere. So finally, he goes to the radio station where Wolfman broadcasts out of, uh, and he wants to get a, play, a dedication played to her so that That's maybe right. he can hook up and she'll call his phone booth. And he goes there, and there's this boring, grizzled DJ in there. And he's like, I'm trying to find the Wolfman. You want the Wolfman? Here's the Wolfman, and it's, it, it, here's the Wolfman, and he puts an eight-track tape or something similar uh, track yeah. tape into the machine, yeah. and it's pre-recorded Wolfman banter, and he talks about how the show's all pre-recorded and it's all sent in, and he's just a guy that that puts on discs that there's no real Wolfman, uh, but that or that he knows the guy, he knows the Wolfman, so that you know he can't do anything, but maybe he can he can forward the dedication to the Wolfman and get it on a future show. And it really is kind of it's this it's this neat kind of like Santa Claus isn't real moment. Except yeah, if you know how radio works, that is the Wolfman, and he's just fucking with Kurt. Because when Kurt leaves, he hears Wolfman on the radio, and he peeks into the recording through the door. That oh, that's so good. Is doing the Wolfman voice, but this this is what you don't know. Like whenever you're listening to the radio and you hear someone call in a request, that's not live. That's recorded when people call in between the songs, and then it's played back as if it's live. Right, not to mention Wolfman Jack in the reality, and they did this much more back then, uh, mailed off his recordings to, to different stations to play. And that's how, you know, and he was syndicated, essentially, uh, throughout different places throughout the country. I mean, now with all the file, everything being recorded digitally, it's much easier to... to shoot files back, shoot the audio of a show back and forth. But you're right, it's, it's really, uh... But also there's a good bit of business where in Wolfman Jack's studio the, uh, refrigerator broke down, so he has to, there's a lot of melting popsicles, and he keeps on foisting popsicles on him, on, uh, Kurt. And he shakes his hand, and his hand is all sticky. I think that's a nice cute bit of business. I was wondering what kind of popsicles he was eating. They look like those, those like dreamsicle popsicles. But could be, yeah. Though, there, there's a deeper meaning to that because what he's saying to Kurt is, you know, take your opportunities the moment they present themselves. Enjoy what pleasures you can take the moment the moment you can get them, even if they are going to leave you a little sticky. Yeah, yeah, that's there's, right. There's a lot of truth and beauty in that scene, and I, and I like to think that that Wolfman is not fucking with Kurt. He just doesn't want to be hassled by fans, so whenever someone comes into the studio, he pretends that he's not Wolfman. Yeah, what really shocked me is um, Wolfman must have lived a, a hard life or had a bad ticker or something, because he died shy of 60. Yeah, yeah, he, he, he passed tragically young. Tragically young, and... Uh... What amazes me is that, but not so young that... Like they did, there, there's a Wolfman Jack parody character that appears on a latter day, now middle day episode of The Simpsons. Jack was still alive when they recorded that episode. I don't know why they didn't just get Jack. I don't know. That is kind of strange. And um, <clears throat> one, one cool thing in this movie is they used uh, they went to uh, the radio archives and got. Clips of actual Wolfman Jack um, song intros and uh, people calling in and stuff. And you hear that kind of layered throughout the soundtrack. Like, you really have to listen for it. It helps if you have a good speaker system. 
But the uh, the sound mixing on this film is is quite as as is the video editing is quite well done, and you have um, it's it just so much uh, so much of the texture to the film is the music. Well, I wanted to talk about something really wonderful about the sound editing with the music. So. I think all of the music in this movie is diegetic. It's music yes, it's intended to are listening to through the radios. But what's really fascinating is in, in, they they do when it's coming out of a car radio. They do try to make it sound like that. But what's really fascinating is when a character is out in the world, you can still hear the music, but the quality of the music and the sound changes as cars move in and out of frame, as if you're as if everyone's listening to the Wolfman Jack show at the same time, and you're catching snatches as it comes through people's open car windows. Not just that, but the music also each song is deliberately chosen to comment on the scene that it's in. So without being if, so on the nose, uh, yeah, with the exception, uh, I think of. Um, you have the scene where there's kind of like the make-out mountain area in town, you know, and uh, near the end, John uh, Milner, Milner takes the teenage girl up there because he wants to get rid of her, right? He wants to ditch her back at home, and she won't tell him his address. And so he, this is a scene that my wife walked in on me watching, and she gave me a really strange look because Milner basically tries to, to fuck her, but I think... I don't think he's really attracted to her. I think he's just trying to screw with her to get her to cough up the address. Well, I mean, he, he's he's returning the favor from when she told him that she was going to tell she was going to tell the cop that she had been raped. I guess so, but it, it's a creepy scene. On the other hand, like that was a different time. But the music on the background is like, "You're 16, you're beautiful, and you're mine." Well, that that is a fucking pervy song. It is. What the age of consent laws are in your state. <laughs> But yeah, there, there, there's like a handful of songs that probably should just be retired. That is one of them. <laughs> Thank Heaven for Little Girls is another. There's just some songs that cannot be done in a non-creepy way. Oh no, one of the alternate titles the studio suggested for American Graffiti was Rock Around the Block. Uh, that's, yeah, that's too on the nose. It is. Um, although it opens with Rock Around the Clock. Uh, and in fact, Mel's, the, the, the diner it's in, they have a chain of restaurants based called Mel's Diner. Huh. Does they own those now? I don't know. They're not very good. Oh, okay. <laughs> but it's exactly what you think it is. So we get that. We get, that, we get the, the drag race uh, after, he, after he drops the girl off. So the drag race, the drag race scene is a fascinating scene because, you know, they, they pull out. It's really exciting. But Falf is taking the lead. And then Falf, one of Falfa's tires blows out, and he goes off the road. His car catches on fire. He breaks his arm. He has to be rescued from his own burning vehicle before it completely goes up in flames. And, it, and that's so fascinating because, yes, Fa uh, Milner did win, but Milner does not consider that a real victory because it's not that he crossed the finish line first. It's that his opponent's car blew out. Yeah, and also Milner is really, um, really hard on himself, and you see that more in the sequel as well. Um, but also, you know, um, Laurie is in the car with Falfa when it flips. Yeah. And when she, you know, she decides to, to get in his car as he's cruising around, and she's just like, be quiet and we'll get along just fine. <laughs> so it makes you wonder why she, I guess she just was so angry with this big, she has a big blow up with, uh, Kurt. 
No, with uh, Steve, I thought. Oh, you're right, Steve, I'm sorry. Yep. Um, and then right after that blow-up, you know, uh, a waitress is trying to flirt with Steve. Like, I think that's another good scene. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Well, everybody everybody kind of gets a button, and, you know, uh, you know, Kurt, like, he hangs out next to the, uh, right, he, Wolfman Jack does play his dedication, he hangs out next to a payphone, the next morning the payphone rings, and it is the woman that he, that he saw on the road, and she does wanna, she does wanna, uh, she does wanna, uh, to try to, to meet up with him in some future time, uh, should their, should their paths ever cross, although, even, even even then he may not be able to because he still has to go. He still want, he's still going to go to. He's made up his mind. He's going to go to college at that point. You know, uh, Toad uh, Toad and the woman he's been hanging out with. All the truth comes out about how he's been talking big and, and spinning some tall tales. But she does uh, she does still like him because she had a great time with him despite all that. I do I do love that you know uh, Steve's car gets stolen and they do manage to get it back after a crazy fight scene with some car thieves. And I love that uh, that that Steve n- never exactly finds out the story of what happened to his car. <laughs> No, that's one of those things you can be left to wonder about. Yeah, and it and it is kind of touching as everything wraps up because you know it wraps up with uh, uh, with Steve getting on getting on a plane back when you could just park on the tarmac. Yeah. Oh, this makes me yearn for a simpler time when aviation was a gentleman's pursuit, uh, and it's kind of nice because like as as the plane you know takes off, he looks out the you know they look out the window. And we see we see the car that that that, that woman was driving, uh, that Kurt had that crush on. Hmm. And and it's going the same direction the plane is. It's really neat. You know, it's saying as if to say the future is here. The future is ahead of you. You are on your way. Yeah, it's a good scene. And then at the very end, you get sort of the the postscript uh, showing all the male characters and what happened to them. Yeah, and it's and it's kind of it's 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 you know bittersweet that that uh, Kurt Kurt goes on to become a, an author who lives in Canada. Steve uh, moved back to his hometown and uh, or no, I guess he didn't go back. No, it did, he did. He moved back to Modesto and became an, an insurance salesman. Uh, John Milner died on New Year's Eve uh, due to a drunk driver. Uh, it, and then finally, uh, Toad, uh, Toad was uh, missing and presumed dead in Vietnam. Right. So it is kind of a sucker punch to get that with the ending, but it shows, you know, everyone went their own way. Um, I believe in, now, it's been a while since I've seen this, but the, the DVD has a pretty good making of documentary. And they talk about subversion, or maybe that, maybe it's a regret that they don't see what happened to the women in the film. Yeah, I, I think that it would have been nice to have had another title card with with some more information about these characters. Like you, you would think you would think it would even end with "and Wolfman Jack still delights listeners to this day" or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, also, the woman in the T Bird is a very young Suzanne Summers. Oh, that's right. Before all the plastic surgery work. Oh yeah, and Three's Company. Way before Three's Company. Yep. Hey, did you notice the license plate on Milner's uh, hot rod? THX one three eight. Yep. Yeah. So George Lucas likes to throw that in movies. Also, uh, 
The Mel's Diner is, is uh, similar to what we'd see later in Attack of the Clones. Oh, yeah, Dex's Diner. I'd like to think that that alien still works inside the diner from this movie. Can we get that special edition? You know, one of the changes George Lucas made for the director's cut, aside from reinserting three scenes he didn't want to be cut to begin with, is he changed the... Uh, there was that exterior scene at the very beginning of Mel's drive-in, and he was never happy with like the sunset in the background, so he changed that digitally. Hmm. That was one of his changes. Yeah, overall, I found I found American Graffiti to be a very a very sweet, very human film. Yeah, I give it I give it a sequel. Yes, it's uh, you know it's it's funny. It can be moving at times. That you have enough going on, you get exposed to a lot of uh, variety of music from the period. And uh, that Wolfman Jack scene is just uh, just legendary. Do you give it sequel yes or sequel no? I, I, I am going to give it sequel yes. I really I really enjoyed this film. Great. Um, so uh, for pitch a sequel, um, what did you have in mind? All right, so what I want to do uh, for a sequel to American Graffiti, I want to jump ahead 10 years. I want to do 1972, but it's going to be a bunch of characters about that same age, but we're going to go closer to the East Coast. It's going to be more sort of a New York scene. It's going to be the early days of disco. Uh, and we're, but we're, going to, we're going to do something similar. They're all at a transitional period in their life. One of them is going to get married. One of them is graduating college. One of them is entering college. Uh, one of them you know, is, is getting ready to graduate from high school. They're all, they're all connected. Maybe they'll be part of the same family. Maybe they'll just be part of this close-knit group. But we're we're gonna see we're gonna see what they're doing in this sort of early disco club scene. We're gonna comment on the uh, the drug use that was very prevalent at the time. Uh, we're also gonna comment on the the awakening of very, a very very public homosexual and queer culture in the United States. Hmm. I mean, I feel like I would I I would love more movies like this where it's it's like a time capsule just covering one night that encapsulates so much about the American experience of the time. And I say like like. 1972 would be the perfect thing to explore. 72 would be pretty... What would you call it? Uh, I would call it... Uh, I would call it The Next American Graffiti. I see. Not an inspired title, but... You know. But you gotta call it something. Yeah, I would uh, I would call mine American Graffiti's. <laughs> and it would be about the... Um, the... The, uh, the porn industry... In the 90s, in the late 90s, as the internet is starting to grab hold, and how the uh, direct-to-video porn industry competes with that, so it'd be the the slightest connection to American graffiti, more of like a mockbuster. Huh. And and the and the uh, tagline would be, "Who did you do in 2002?" <laughs> Okay, I like that. I like that. So, there you go. On to what you're watching. Um, I, I watched a part of a documentary on HBO that's good. It's just it's four hours long, so I haven't had time to finish it. It is called Elvis the Searcher. Huh. And it is about a... Uh, Elvis Presley the Searcher is the full name. 
and this is a documentary about Elvis's early years and they they play a lot of audio from very rough recordings when he first was in you know kind of a local um, recording artist trying to find what his sound was and they talked to people that knew him at that stage in his career so it was like up to the point to where he gets famous but like not up to the point to where he dies which it's, I think it's kind of neat that it just focuses on that part so I found it pretty interesting. I plan on finishing it. I just haven't had uh, time to recently. Cool. What about you? What have you been watching? Well, uh, so I've been uh, working my way through more of the uh, Joe Bob Briggs, the last uh, drive-in uh, movie marathon on Shudder. Uh, and I'm not going to talk about this one because we had, did cover it on the show, but they, they showed Hellraiser as part of that. I think is their okay. final film. Damn, that's a great movie. That still holds up. I can Isn't count it? on that movie at any point and watch it all the way to the end and enjoy it just as much as if I'm watching it from the beginning. So definitely check out our episodes on Hellraiser. Um but I did want to talk about uh, celebrity or sorority babes in the slime ball bowlerama. Okay, and uh, what's that from? It's like it there's in the marathon. The marathon okay. but it's uh, I believe would say it's a Charles Band film. It's it's everything you want in a shitty exploitation horror film. It doesn't make any sense. It starts with some some guys trying to peek in on a secret sorority initiation, but the sorority house is just some com condo in a bad neighborhood in Los Angeles. Oh, um, they then they're caught. Their punishment is they're going to be sent on this initiation. They have to help these uh, these initiate girls break into a bowling alley and steal this bowling trophy. But during the course of doing that, they release a demon who's imprisoned in the bowling trophy. The demon that sounds like Audrey too. Uh, and it's just like, it's just this, it's this horrible mix of bad sex, bad horror, bad comedy, but all together makes a very enjoyable, goofy exploitation film. What was it made? Oh, it was made in the early 80s. I think it was like 84. Okay, yeah. Let me double check. So, yeah, here we go. Sword Ridge and the Slimeball Bowlerama. That, oh, it was it was released in 1988, directed by David DeCoteau, uh, who's made a lot of uh, exploitation films. Uh, but uh, what's so great though is that it's 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 the Expendables of Scream Queens because Lena Quigley, Brink Stevens, and Michelle Bauer are all in it. They play the three female leads. I'll have to check that out. That really sounds like it's something. I'm pretty amused by uh, with their their uh, Charles Dance's uh, latest output. You know, you have things like Ginger Dead Man, Evil Bond, and something else are all part of the shared universe now. Yeah, yeah, I saw. I've seen. I've seen some of both of those series of movies and one of their crossovers. And some of those they can even film in a weekend. It's really quite impressive. Yeah, like, no, I, 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 their their work ethic is not in question. I do, and I do think there is something to be said about the Roger Corman shoot it over a weekend way of making a film. And and yet, I wish they tried just a little bit harder, because I feel like a lot of their like like again, Ginger Dead Man versus Evil Bong, Evil Bong. It's such a disposable movie. It's like they expect people to just watch it once and forget about it. And I, I like I like movies like Sorority Babe and the Slimeball Bowlerama, where just enough effort's been put into it that it is worth repeated viewings. Right. Um, I like how. One of the hell or no, one of the Puppet Master films is nothing but just uh, outtakes from other films. 
<laughs> because they couldn't get the money to do a proper film, so they filmed kind of a wraparound story. Oh, I've got a clip show movie. It's like it's like the Trail of the Pink Panther of the uh, Puppet Master series. So there you go. So yeah, I think we had a good discussion here about American Graffiti. Tune in next week in which we will look at more American Graffiti. So um, you can list, follow me on Twitter at M-E-T-W-B-T. Follow the show on Twitter at SequelCast2. You can follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor, and our theme is by Mark with the C. Check him out on markwiththec.com. And uh, you can listen to us on Stitcher. You can go to stitcher.com and or get the app on your mobile device and, and, uh, and listen course, to it through there. The, uh, the Batman Podcast Network. Of course. How can I forget the Batman Podcast Network? Yes. Great group of guys there. Um, that was less sarcastic than I meant it. Oh, wait. No. Uh, strike that. Reverse it. Uh, okay. So, um, we're going to do our scene, and I picked one, and you thought it was a good one. So this is where Steve, the, the, um... Ron Howard. Ron Howard. I keep on thinking of Opie for some reason. Um, Ron Howard is confronting a teacher of his at the dance. So which part do you want to play? Well, I am Crute. Okay. All right, all right, Bolander, break it up. You know the rules. You and your girlfriend want to do that? You go someplace else, huh? Hey, crew, why don't you go kiss a duck? What did you say? I said go kiss a duck, Marblehead. Okay, Bolander, you're suspended. Don't, don't you ever come in on Monday. You're out. You are out. Hey, hey, crew, I graduated last semester, remember? God, I love that. It's just a funny moment, and just that kiss a duck is, as an insult, is so crazy. Yeah, go suck an egg. I can never think of go suck an egg without thinking of the late Harlan Ellison, of course, but uh, yeah, (laughs) who who used egg sucker a lot as insults in his work. But yeah, pretty good stuff. So next week we'll be doing more American Graffiti. For Sequel Cast 2, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Sane. Some in the chanted evening, you may see a stranger. I see to be what I'm not. You see, I'm wearing my heart like a crown, pretending that you're still around. To read